The Doctor Is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me. You just patted yourself on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person. I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept. You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. She called me my friend. That's really nice. I don't know if it's like a Facebook friend. I saw this meme. Guy was at a funeral, and there were two people sitting in the chairs in the room. That was it. 150 chairs, two people sitting there. The undertaker was saying to his associate, I don't understand it. He has hundreds of Facebook friends. Don't that say it. Don't that say it. Good to have you with me. This is E-Person Monday. I got an E-Person the other day where the... The gentleman was saying that I was wrestling with not even being able to say e-person because it's son. But he pointed out that the first syllable is purse, as in P-U-R-S-E. So they cancel each other out. Feminine, masculine, purse, son. I don't know. That's a bit of a stretch, but I think it could be justification to continue to say e-person. We'll get to those in a moment because I'm getting very backed up. I looked back at where I got a pick from and I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to fall back. I'm starting to fall way back there. There for a while I could keep up with relatively a week or two old e-persons, but now I'm getting down to 5 or 6 weeks old. I always send out a notice to the person though. Say e-person has come up. So, all that said, Albert Ellis was a, I think he was from New York, New York City, psychologist who developed a therapeutic system and even almost a personality system called Rational Emotive Therapy. It was the forerunner of a very common therapeutic approach now, and I use a lot of it myself, cognitive behavioral therapy. The gist of it is that how we react emotionally, how we behave because of that, is fueled by our thoughts. How do you interpret things? Everything needs interpreted, and we have to look at a situation, look at a person, and tell ourselves certain things about this. And depending upon what we tell ourselves, we can fuel our emotions or we can tamp down our emotions. We can engage in very self-defeating behavior or we can engage in behavior that is socially good. All goes back to the thoughts. Ellis 
said that humans are basically irrational. Now, Alice was an atheist. However, and I remember getting this in grad school when he said humans are basically irrational. And I remember thinking, well, wait a minute. Why? Why would humans be basically irrational? Now, from a Christian perspective, that is a parallel. Because the Christian perspective says we are all victims of original sin. Bent will, self-seeking, self-absorbed. And that's irrational. That stuff's all irrational. Ellis listed 12 ways that were the most common misinterpretations of situations or the most common ways of thinking that could cause you emotional struggles. One of those ways he called catastrophizing. That was awful. That, that, that that happened to me was the worst thing that could have happened. If I, if I lose my job, I will not be able to bear it. It would be so, so devastating. Now, Ella said, we use those kinds of extreme words to describe much of what happens to us. And in so doing, we convince ourselves that in fact, this is much, much worse than it really is. Now for Ellis, that was a manner of thinking that was common to people in situations that were very troublesome. But I think we do this as a matter of speaking. Let me illustrate. How was your day yesterday? Oh, it was bad. It was was really bad. What happened? Oh, oh. I got up in the morning. I went out in the car. The tire was flat. The tire was flat. So, of course, I was late to work. I got backed up on what I had to do. And it just went downhill from there. It was, I'll tell you, when I went to bed that night, I was so glad that day was over. Now, wait a minute. A flat tire, okay, it's an inconvenience. It's not something you like to happen. And when you were behind at work, you didn't necessarily get everything done that you wanted to get done, or maybe that you had to get done. She came home. What else so bad happened? Well, I'll tell you, I I was cooking and I forgot all about it and it burned. In the overall scheme of things, one could say those were mishaps. They were inconveniences. They were something that I wouldn't have chosen. But really bad? I had a friend of mine who was, for whatever the reason, going to either interview some fella. This is a true story. 
he came in and he was escorted into the office, sat down in the chair, and the guy that he was going to talk to had his back to him and was staring out the window. And the guy asked a question. I guess maybe this was part of the interview. Have you ever had a really bad day? Now, I would say that most people would say, oh, yes, yes, I have. I've had some really, really devastating, terrible days. The fellow turned around, and his face was completely disfigured from burns. The kind of face that would frighten children, the kind of face that people wouldn't want to look at, the kind of face that would make him, if he were of the ilk, incredibly self-conscious. He said, this is a really bad day, meaning when it happened. When you use words like awful, terrible, horrible, devastating, what else do you have left to describe really tough stuff? A death? A severe accident? A diagnosis? A house fire? What do you have left? You see, what happens is because... Fortunately, for most of us, our lives are not daily filled with such things. Our lives are daily filled with inconveniences. They're filled with, oh, unpleasantries. Perhaps hurtful remarks. But to describe them as awful... I just, I, I couldn't handle it. It was, it was the worst day I've ever had. Well, if that's true, then you have a very blessed life. Because if the worst day you ever had was breaking up with your girlfriend or getting fired, you're very fortunate. Very, very blessed. But when you use that kind of language, it trickles into your thinking. And life becomes more unpredictably dark than it really is. Save the catastrophic language for the really big stuff. Don't use it all up on day-to-day frustrations. I'm Dr. Ray. We don't have a lot of time on this earth. We weren't meant to spend it this way. The doctor is in. What can I say? I'm thrilled. of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure 
hatred. EWTN. Live truth. Live Catholic. Is it time for a nap? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. I have to admit something, I am a bad napper. Unless it's rainy outside, I rarely can catch a nap. But according to a recent study, habitual napping appears to be associated with larger brain mass in adults. This appears to be an important protection against neurodegenerative diseases like dementia. Other studies have shown that even 30-minute naps while at home or work could enhance learning, boost attention, and increase well-being and productivity. Some businesses are installing nap rooms and other spaces to catch a few Zs. Job One, however, is getting a good night's sleep in the first place. Good sleep hygiene, meaning about seven-plus hours of sleep per night, is still the best medicine. If you take naps, you have famous company. Leonardo da Vinci, Margaret Thatcher, George W. Bush, and Pope Francis, to name a few. For more on napping, yawn your way over to the Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. Dr. Ray Garendi here. The program The Doctor is in Monday through Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time Co-Production, EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and Ave Maria Radio Communications. Over there in Ann Arbor, my producer man, Andrew Kruchek. Dr. Ray, I told my daughter today that we have to go to Mass tonight because it's a holy day of obligation. She asked why, and I told her. All right, let me stop there. I don't know how old the daughter is. My guess would be anywhere between, what, 9 and 16. First of all, I want to compliment Dad on going to Mass on a Holy Day of Obligation because those have kind of just slipped out of Mass obligations. That's one. I don't know exactly what he explained to her, how in-depth he went. My suggestion would be, if it's an older child, you give explanations a little more than, well, because we're Catholic and it's important to go to church. You explain. These are very special days to honor the Lord, and they have been placed in the church calendars to remind us of very, very important aspects of what we believe or however in-depth you want to go. My grandmother came from Italy. Uh, she was eight. If the priest at St. Anthony in Canton, Mother Angelica's home parish, my grandmother was there when Rita Rizzo was there. If the priest said it, my grandmother said, that's it. Priest said it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Nowadays, it's not that way. 
if the kids ask, you got to be prepared, as St. Peter says, to give them a reason for the faith. He goes on. My wife, who is Catholic, said to me, stop pushing the church on the kids. Pushing the church on the kids. Teaching them the principles of the faith is pushing the church. Interesting. Sounds like this is a reflection of what the culture says. Don't force it. They got to choose it on their own. They got to want it. If they're unhappy about it, don't you understand what you're doing? You're actually pushing them away. Dad said, I responded, that's why I'm here on earth, to teach them about the faith. How should I have responded? I think your response is pretty good. That's what my duty is, to teach them about the faith. But I, I would say, Dad, you could... You could give another response. You could say, do you do you push vegetables on them when they don't want to eat vegetables? Do you push a bedtime on them when they don't want to go to bed at that time? Do you not allow them to hang around with certain kids even though they want to? In other words, parents do all kinds of pushing in everything. Because we realize that the kids don't know what's good for them. That's why we're there. Church is good for her to expose her to this. Now, as an adult, if she says, I don't want it, I had to go, and I don't want to go because I'm free now at last. Well, that doesn't mean that you automatically were deficient in bringing her to church. Again, some weeks ago I did a monologue on if you set your standards too high, your kids are going to rebel. That's that's a mantra that's just totally nonsensical, but it's just, it's spread so much, it's repeated so much that people uncritically believe it. Well, this is another one. This is, this is a subset of that. This is to say... If I make you go to church, you will rebel against church. I don't know the differences in the approach to the faith between mom and dad here. It may be that mom is a little more nervous about being culturally different, where dad is saying, no, this is my my job to do this, to expose her to the faith, And then what she does with it when she's older is out of my control. But for now, this is what I am called to do. But she doesn't want to go. She doesn't pay attention. She doesn't like it at all. So what do you gain? I gain by having her there. Because I certainly know that she won't gain anything by not being there. If she is there, she could gain something. Yeah, too many parents are, are simply yielding 
to the culture that says, don't push something on the children that they don't want. Don't you understand? This is all going to come back to haunt you. Parenting in fear. Hmm. All right, do I have time to get to that one's that one's kind of long. Let me see if I got this one here. Oh boy, that one's long too. Mm-mm-mm. I'm going to have to go through the break on this one. I have a 14-year-old girl that I had before my reversion to the Catholic faith. I married when she was two to a man, not her biological father. Biological father has no contact and wanted that himself. He legally signed over paternal rights when my husband adopted her at age seven. She says, I have no real sisters, in her words. Apparently there are other children. She she claims also that I do not love her Even though I compliment her, I hug her, I bless her nightly, and I take her on small dates to stores she likes, etc. Okay, now something is going on here. I don't know what this girl is discontent about, but apparently something is happening here. And mom is trying to do everything she can to make her feel loved, because obviously this is her daughter. She's displaying very harsh words and even violent behaviors towards her little sisters, four little sisters. Mom, stop her. No negotiation. Stop her. Put the consequences you see fit upon this and make it very clear you cannot mistreat your younger siblings. She can be very nurturing to the two and four-year-old. Of course, they're non-threatening. But she's not that way towards the older two, ages seven and ten. We move on average every two years. We're military. She was not always this way. At age 10, we moved. She seemed depressed, angry, and COVID hit. For days and weeks, her best friend next door was not allowed to play anymore. Yep, another COVID casualty. Although her friend's mother eventually loosened the restriction and allowed free contact, those families moved away within the month. So what mom seems to be saying here is that things have changed since this young lady was moving into adolescence. Not unusual. She's very disrespectful and reluctant to help with family affairs like babysitting and chores. She's commonly disrespectful to myself and her father, even grandparents and other adults. All right. Now, what is going on here? This kind of stuff has to be permitted. And then mom, mom gave the explanation. I have realized I have not disciplined her sufficiently in the past and have tolerated growing disrespect by, quote, talking to her and lecturing, which has not worked. So, Mom goes on. I'm respecting computer time. We've recently tried punishing her with essays when she was caught online on a dangerous gaming website and other sites without permission. Yeah, Mom, you better do something about that computer. I'm looking for more ideas, especially when she's disrespectful. She seems very arrogant, but I expect she's extremely low in self-esteem. Well, here's what's happened, I think. Mom has realized this has gone in a direction that she wants to reverse. Good news, bad news. The good news is the child's not 19. 
The bad news is she's not nine. In other words, this is going to take this is going to take a little longer. Right? I don't know why mom has allowed a lot of this. I don't know what it is about her parenting that she let it get to this point on a roll. But she's saying, what, what can I do about this? She says, please recommend some counselors. I referred her to a couple of my books, things that would put her, at least at this point, back in authority. I want to address a couple of side questions that mom asked in between the lines. Dr. Ray. with Teresa Tomio. We are in an age where the culture is taking over so strongly and we need to be effective communicators. One-on-one, online, in interviews, phone conversations. Doesn't mean that every person is going to have a degree, that every person is going to know how to do a podcast, but we need to first form ourselves in prayer and know the faith and then at least know something. If we're going to be evangelizing and out there on whatever platform on a regular basis, but are we making sure that we are doing it to the best of our ability? Prayerfully, but also in a way to communicate effectively. How do we get that message across? How are we approaching people? Are we being kind? Are we giving them accurate information? Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Nothing illustrates the powerful bond between man and wife intended by God, the creator of marriage, than these words from Matthew's Gospel. A true marriage is a sacramental bond and is therefore indissoluble. The Catholic Catechism, however, realistically acknowledges that the presence of evil can severely strain this bond. Marital union has always been threatened by discord, a spirit of domination, jealousy, infidelity, and conflicts that can escalate into hatred and separation. The original communion of Adam and Eve was ruptured by their sin of disobedience. Their relations were distorted by mutual recrimination, says the Catechism, and brought about the pain of childbirth and the toil of work. Without God's help, A man and woman cannot achieve the union of their lives for which God created them in the beginning. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. But I'm a doctor, and it's my tradition to care for the sick and injured. This is Dr. Ray Garandy, program Doctors In, variant of the program, Eat Person Monday. Talking to a mom here, I just want to synopsize in some type of peregrination. I like that word. It's a word you just don't come across. Uh, she she sent me this Eat Person, and before the break, kind of went through parts of it. Bottom line is this, mom had this young girl, she's 14 now, had her before she became... Uh, reverted to the Catholic faith. Um, she was married when this little one was two. 
to stepdad who has adopted her since. And since then, the girl after age 10 has really gotten more difficult, sneaky, disrespectful. Mom has said, I have not been, I have not been as uh, disciplined, she, she used the word sufficient in the past, and I've tolerated growing disrespect. Okay. So when you finally realize this, and mom's looking at this at age 14 and going, okay, now what? Do I change all at once, or do I try to change a little bit at a time? Answer, you change all at once. Because even if you were determined to change all at once, you can't change all at once. Your habits have been in place too, just like your daughter's habits have been in place. The things that you've done as a parent, you've been doing. So even if you were to say, okay, I've got to do something very different, you're not going to flip a switch and go, I'm a completely different parent. I can follow through. I'm confident. I'm calm. And I can put on a consequence. No, that's not going to happen. You will... You will turn around like a big ship in the ocean that takes 12 miles to turn around. His mom is saying, I'm looking for more ideas for discipline, especially when she's disrespectful. Well, mom, it sounds like you're, you're going to have to kind of ratchet up your consequences. In other words, if, you, if, you, if your daughter's disrespectful and you're giving her a 100-word essay, she could write something like that out in about three minutes. Is that equivalent to being nasty and disrespectful to her mother's her mother or to mistreat her siblings like you said she does no you might want to say okay here's what's going to happen it's a 500 word essay and it's loss of all technological privileges whatever you decide because you want to say look this is now serious you're 14 years old the kinds of things you're doing are really ugly and I've got to do my very best to stop this so that we can have peace in our family and we can indeed get along. Now, people will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Dr. Ray, you're not teaching her anything. All you're doing is stopping the bad behavior. Well, first of all, that is teaching, all right? If you do this, this is what's going to happen. That's how the world teaches, by the way, you know? You behave foolishly, you're going to get consequences. That's how the world teaches. But secondly, you got to stop the bad before the good has a chance to grow. How is mom and daughter going to get along better if the daughter is permitted, whenever she emotionally feels like it, to mistreat mom? How does that work? Mama's already said, I talked to her, I gave her lectures, which have not worked. Of course not. It's all words. If you got a kid who responds to words, you're in a minority. Count your blessings. Look at all of us normal parents who have to do something about it. But most of the time, you sort of got to back up what you say, and then if you're decently consistent in backing up what you say, then pretty soon all you have to do is say it because you don't have to discipline it anymore because the child knows that you're willing to do something about it. I get this in my office all the time. Parents will come in with adolescent kids and they'll say, here's what's going on. And I got to admit, in fact, this is what I have allowed. They were of the belief that I can reason and talk this child into behaving better. 
if that works, go for it. God bless you. But once nasty behavior gets on a roll, words and lectures and nagging, no matter how impactful they might seem to the parent, are so much wind to the child. This is not this is not a negative view of children. This is reality. Come on, you go to work and you get nagged every day by a supervisor. Just nagged. How soon would you just look at the supervisor as if you have no credibility with me? Get off my case. What's more, you probably wouldn't want to go into work. What's more, your mood wouldn't be good. So indeed, as a parent, if, if you can reason and talk the child into good behavior, way to go. Good for you. Wonderful. But sometimes you can't. And it sounds like mom has allowed an awful lot, by her own admission, that has led to this daughter getting on a roll. Very much mistreating and sneaky. She was on the computer, heading places she's not supposed to go. Is there a password on that computer? Is that computer on time limits? That can be programmed into the computer? So, all of that is to say, Mom, you can alter. You can definitely alter some of this stuff. Let me see what I got here. That was that. Okay, don't want to do that. What else here? I'm working my way forward here. My granddaughter is a very mature and spiritual six-year-old, proficient in school, Catholic school, loving and caring. Grandpa is the male figure in her life because her father is not present in her life at all. She doesn't know him. He's never mentioned. Lately, she's been praying and talking a lot about a husband for her mom and about siblings. (laughs) All her dolls are getting married. We think that very soon she will ask about her dad, and we don't know what to answer. We're concerned about how our answers will affect her. Okay, well, oh boy, I'm going to run out of time here. Uh, My daughter also is very concerned about what to answer the day she asks about her father. The daughter feels, my daughter feels very guilty, and it saddens her that this conversation could hurt her daughter. Okay, I've really got to, I've really got to assuage this worry. The father never wanted to be in their life. His answer to I'm pregnant was to get an abortion. We haven't heard or seen him to this day. We've had family and extended family talk to see if we could approach him. Consensus is always no. How to start, what to say, Dr. Ray, especially to our six-year-old granddaughter. All right. Well, I had enough time here to go over the key points in this e-person. After the break, coming up here when the music starts in mere moments, we'll talk about this. Thanks for joining me. I'm Dr. Ray.
We live right now in dark and confusing times, but Jesus is always at work. We shouldn't allow ourselves to forget what we know just because we're facing many circumstances that are threatening and confusing to us. You know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know that he's poured out his Holy Spirit and formed his body on the earth and that he is the head of the body in heaven and his body is right here on earth. You can point to it. Jesus didn't just leave us a set of teachings. Jesus, in fact, gave us himself. The church is ultimately the deifying union between Christ the head and the sanctified members of his body. And so just as the Lord unfurls himself into the Eucharist, Jesus is also extending his divinely human presence into his mystical body, the church. Cresta in the afternoon, weekdays at 4 Eastern on EWTN Radio. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The second commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The disclosure of a name in the ancient world belonged to the order of trust and intimacy. And so when God revealed his name to Moses, it was an extraordinary outreach to us, saying uh, that we were called to an intimate, trusting relationship with him. And so we should always reverence this name as a great gift. We should obviously never use God's name to curse or to blaspheme or to berate others. God's name is meant to bring blessing. And likewise, the vain use. Vain means empty. Uh, so some of these expressions like, oh my God, or you know, and so on, uh, need to be avoided as well. Vain means empty, and those are using God's name as an empty kind of expression of exasperation. And then finally, never ever to use God's name to swear an oath falsely. God is the God of truth. The second commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. Dr. Ray Garandi, thank you for joining me here on The Doctor's Inn. This is E-Person Monday, and I read the E-Person before the break. But if you weren't with me before the break and you know who you are, I'll summarize. Six-year-old granddaughter. Mom was um, pregnant. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume it doesn't say here, but probably not married and dad at once no part of this little girl never did totally gone completely absent from the life made it very very clear made the observation that uh, when mom said I'm pregnant his response was get an abortion the little girl seems to be showing signs of uh, wanting mom to get married uh, marrying off her daughters etc now their interpretation of this is that this is indicating some kind of uh, psychological motivation that she recognizes there's a male gap in her life and therefore she's she's sending off signals that she wants it filled. That could be. It could be. But it could also be that she's six years old and she's just starting to do some things that little six-year-old girls think about. So, given that, they asked... When and if this comes up, this girl gets a little bit older, what do we do? How do we talk about it? Now, there, there's a fear here for both of them. Um, 
Let's see. The, let me see if I can find this. Here we are. We're very concerned about how our answers will affect her. And then they said, our daughter is also very concerned about what to answer the day she asks about her father. All right. Well, let me let me calm down a little bit of that anxiety. There, There isn't. How should I put this? You don't need to be unduly afraid that somehow you're going to misspeak. And if you if you just use the wrong word, somehow, some way, it's going to bury down inside her little psyche and it's going to percolate down there and then explode when she's 23. You can't fear that. I don't know when the little girl is going to ask, do I have a daddy and where is he? But at that point, loving grandparent, loving mom, apparently uh, grandma says that uh, grandpa is a very, very solid male in this little girl's life. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Explain to her whatever level she's at. Maybe she's eight or nine years old and this finally comes out a little more forcefully. See, honey, your dad didn't want to be a dad he he went away and it wasn't because of you because of what he wanted to do so we have grandpa and grandma and mommy three grown-ups who love you very very much your dad is somewhere where we don't know where he is he decided he wants to go his own way now I gotta tell you sweetheart once again that doesn't have anything to do with you your daddy left before you were born so he didn't even know you simple kind of straightforward and you don't get nervous like if I if I say something wrong, what'll I do? I'll mess her up. No, come on. As far as I know, I mean I've been looking. There's no formula here that says this is how you speak to a child who asks about an absent father. There's no formula. You're going to explain in a good, loving way about it. I've noticed this. This this is now this is a byproduct of the onslaught of the experts. So many parents are nervous about how they need to explain something or talk with the child <clears throat> about a situation or about an emotional struggle or about some some childhood event. They're nervous because in the in their minds, I was going to say in the back of their minds. No, it's not in the back of their minds. In the front of their minds is the idea that what if I blow it? What if I say something psychologically inappropriate? Only the experts know how to talk to children. That's not true. I always tell parents a lot of times, well, you know your daughter a lot better than I do. You would know how she would react if you said this or you said that more than I would. I don't know your daughter. I give you a few ideas, you pick from them. But you cannot go through childhood, well, their childhood, worrying 
that if and when you have to explain something, you're going to misexplain it. And then the real scary part is that it may not show up until they're on what used to be Springer talking about you and the time you told him in a way that messed him up. Wow. And how can you be a parent like that? That's too tough. I had 10 kids. There are a lot of times we had to explain all kinds of stuff to our kids. Our kids are all adopted, so you can imagine the questions we got. Explained them as best we could with what we knew. As far as we can tell, our kids are none the worse to wear for it. But you can't live in the fear of, what if I misexplain? I'm Dr. Ray. You're not fit yet. Not fit. I'm the doctor. No, doctor. I'm the doctor, and I say that you're not fit. Hi, friends. Johnette Williams here. Join me every Wednesday on Women of Grace Live as I welcome New Age researcher and blogger for Women of Grace, Sue Brinkman. Sue and I will be talking about all the wacky things that could distract you from your faith. Psychics, yoga, Reiki, crystals, acupuncture, Ouija boards, tarot cards, and astral traveling are just a few of the stranger things we discuss. That's why we call it Wacky Wednesday. So join us every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. An advanced care planning document, or ACP, is one kind of advanced directive, providing a written statement of a person's desired medical treatments in the future. A recent study titled, What's Wrong with Advanced Care Planning, concluded that there is a gap between hypothetical scenarios and real-world decision-making. Another study found that 80% of emergency room physicians misinterpreted an ACP as a do-not-resuscitate order. Another issue is that any disagreement between medical professionals and the patient's healthcare agent regarding specific ACP language may undermine the patient's ultimate wishes. Your best bet is never to sign an advanced care planning document, such as a pulse form when admitted to a hospital. And make sure your healthcare durable power of attorney has a provision which invalidates any previously signed ACP. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844 398 9399. That's 844 398 9399. Hi, Dr. Ray. I listened to your show today. She was referring to a show where I talked about the absolute importance and as the research is mounting all over the place, all over the place of strength training. The benefits are enormous. Does carrying around an infant or a toddler count as weightlifting for us moms? Yes, it does. You know why? Because you're doing graduated lifting. As that infant and toddler is growing, they're getting heavier. So naturally, 
you're getting stronger. Now, I look at some of these young moms in church, and they're holding a three-year-old or a four-year-old, and they're holding this kid pretty much throughout Mass. It's a good thing they get to sit down every so often. And I think to myself, I lift weights, but I'm not sure I'm as able to do that as she is. Now, I know I used to do it when our kids were younger. Sometimes you had one in each hand. But I'm still impressed with you moms who hold this child. Now, sometimes you cross your arms together, you link them together because the child is kind of leaning over your shoulder. But I'm impressed. Yes, Amanda, it does count as weightlifting. <laughs> I'd like our 14-year-old son to be if. Okay, this is... Okay, I misread that. I would like that our 14-year-old son, soon to be a freshman in high school, to either, one, read three chapters, two, complete three vocabulary book pages, and three, do 30 minutes of chores per day during the weekdays. Is this too much? Now, Mom, why would you ask that? A uh, hundred years ago, on a farm, 14-year-old kid worked all day, summertime. Worked all day. That's why the school year came about as it did. We were an agrarian society, and those were, those were very busy family months. Three chapters. You know how long it takes to read three chapters? What, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour? Three vocabulary book pages? I don't know how long the pages are, but that's not very long. Or 30 minutes of choice. You're, you're really saying, do I have the right as a parent to ask for 30 minutes of self-improvement per day in the summertime? Mom, you're scaring me. That you have to question whether you have the right to do that? Well, first of all, you do because you're mom. Secondly... I am not the, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the validator of that. I think it's a, I personally think it's a wonderful thing. I wish we would have done it with our kids. I don't know if we did. I don't, rem, I don't remember. It's all fuzzy way back there. I'm not getting reinforcement from my husband. Am I wrong to insist on a little more brain work and trust? Why would you be wrong? Why would you be wrong? You're not saying, okay, since you don't have school, you're going to six hours a day during the summer of schoolwork and chore work. You're not saying that. You're saying, hey, just want you to do a little bit of this. You got every day free doing nothing. Here's 30 minutes of something. She, do, she does go on. She says, none of which would take more than one hour likely. Okay, so I'm wrong. If he did three days without a fight, I'd be happy. Well, there's a simple way to deal with this, Mom. You make it the first item of business. In other words, no perks, no social movement, no privileges, until these things are complete each day, whichever one you choose. Rotate them. 30 minutes of chores one day, vocabulary the next reading the next how awful 
that you would make a child read. Want to hear a stat? Just saw it. 57% of the American public has not read one book in the past year. The book reading market is constricting. Nowadays, a certain amount of sales on a book is considered very successful. 40 years ago, that would have been terrible. So one, you're questioning yourself. Two, you're not asking for very much. Three, your son is giving you grief. I think you got to make it pretty clear that, in fact, nothing happens before these things are done. Now, I don't know how much resistance you're getting from your husband, and I don't know what his rationale would be. My guess would be it is you're forcing something on the kid that's excessive. I think this reflects what has happened among parents. We ask so little of our children anymore. I've talked often about work ethic and how many young people are not good workers on their first jobs or maybe even their later jobs because employers will say this all the time. 30 minutes of chores or as somebody said to me, life skills is nothing. It's nothing. In most of human history, that would have been considered an absolute vacation from work because as soon as kids were old enough to help around the house, that was it. It was everybody's duty to make that household run. It's the way it's been throughout all of human history. But now we question ourselves and we say, well, you know, 30 minutes, that's, I don't know. And the fact that his attitude is, yeah, you're asking way too much of me, tells you something. And I would ask your husband, why, why are you against this? What is it about requiring this? that you think is a problem. That he'll get mad? That no one that we know of does this? And I got and I'm there's no doubt in my mind no one that you do know of does that. There's no question. Poll a hundred parents and you're gonna be one. That's it. So what? You're the parent. You're allowed. I'd like to see all hundred parents do it. I think it's great. So, Mom, you don't need me to tell you. It's just fine. Thank you for joining me here on The Doctor Is In on this E-Person Monday. As always, delighted to be with you. Thank you so much for keeping me company. Good Lord permitting, tomorrow we can link heads and come up with some solutions or some ideas to make life a little smoother, a little closer to walking with God. So now, walk with God. Most important walk you'll ever have. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.